Good morning, everyone. As I understand it, everyone is sick, kind of like me. Uh, We've heard about some people going to urgent care this morning, Uh, some people taking their dogs to urgent care this morning, so it's apparently it's a busy morning health-wise. But uh, I'm glad you're here with us. I hope that you had uh, a wonderful Christmas with your family. This morning, our key... uh, passage is going to come from the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. We'll be in Isaiah 61 and 62. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 10 and going through 62, verse 3. I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations." For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, for Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet, till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. We have been celebrating uh, the season of Advent for the past Five weeks now. And as we stated in the first Sunday of Advent, we look uh, back at the birth of Jesus while also looking forward to his return with great anticipation. But I think it's a little bit difficult for us to really appreciate what that word anticipation means within this context of looking forward to the return of Jesus. I think most often we would probably say that, yes, I am looking forward to the return of Jesus, but if we were honest with everyone, it is not something that we are actually anticipating. Because you see, there is a difference between looking forward to something that might happen and anticipating something that could happen any second, right? If you have kids in your home, then most of you have just gone through a season of great anticipation. My own children, uh, Zeke and Jed, could not wait for Christmas. And as the day grew closer, their anticipation became more and more evident. Jed, in particular, got antsy. Zeke was not as antsy because he got a bicycle about three months ago. And so we told him he wasn't getting any presents on Christmas. But we did point out all the ones that Jed was getting. Uh, as we went, because, yes, apparently we're just those kinds of people. (laughs) Zeke did get presents under the tree, however. But they were excited not just because of what they were going to get, but Jed in particular was really excited because of what he got for Zeke. And I took them both out separately and let them choose uh, what they were going to buy for one another, and Jed could hardly stand it. It was the first present wrapped under the tree, Uh, And he wrote his own card for it that said, open now. And then he explained, but don't open it now. Open it on Christmas, which I don't know exactly what he was thinking there. 
But he was so excited, and in this box uh, was there were two things. One was a Star Wars uh, fidget spinner, which he chose for Zeke. But the the main prize, the the star on top of the tree, if you will, was a stuffed Steph Curry doll. Yeah, that that he wanted to give his brother. Um, then we went to Fresno this week. And we spent Christmas in a uh, four-ish bedroom house, right? One, two, three, four. Uh, with nine children. Yeah. And two toilets, by the way. And it gave uh, me a whole new appreciation for mass anticipation as Christmas drew closer. And there's an important idea that I want us to consider this morning. For a great deal of human history, man was separated from God. But God made promises to man. He wanted to save. He wanted to bless. He wanted man to be in relationship with God. And God longed to fulfill those promises. And at the same time, the people of God also wanted those promises to be fulfilled for them. Life was hard away from God. They had become a people who were slaves, who were owned by others, who were pushed around, who were victimized. They lived in eager anticipation of the restoration, the legitimacy, and the new life that the coming Messiah would bring. The story of the Bible is a story filled with waiting. It is a story filled with anticipation. It is a story where every chapter looks forward to the coming of God and what God will do. And we, this morning, wait still. And as the people of God, we cannot forget that life now is a shell of what life with God will be. We wait knowing that life is good, but that it is also hard. We know that we are not at home, but we are away from our God. And so we are called not to look forward, but to live in anticipation. To be antsy. To be constantly checking our phones. Looking out the window, watching the horizon, and waiting for our God to return. Something I want you to think about this morning is this simple question. What does it mean for you to live in anticipation of God's return? So uh, we were going to light our candles uh, of Advent earlier, and there were no children for the lighting of the candles, nor for the children's sermon that I had planned. So we had to wait for children to show up. Uh, I was confident that they would, sort of. And here they are. Yay for kids. Hi, guys. How's it going? Good. I'm glad. Um, so we have been lighting the candles of Advent uh, over the past five weeks, and you guys have been helping us with that. And um, we light the candles as a way to help us remember and celebrate uh, all that Jesus brings to the world. So do you guys remember the names of any of the candles? Do you remember what any of them are about? Yes. Joy. Okay. Joy was our candle. This is our, I think this is our joy candle over here. Uh, 
Okay, so we lit the candle of joy. And why do we light the candle of joy? Hmm, because we have joy. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so you remember, you're, you're like the only one who's been here. So do you remember any of the other, what the, any of the other candles are? Hmm, Michelle remembers. What's one you remember, Michelle? Hope. Hope was the first candle that we lit. Actually, that might have been hope over there. I'm just going to light them in whatever order I want today. The candle of hope, because Jesus gives us hope. There's two more. One was peace. And the candle of peace. And then the last one was the candle of, anyone know? Love. Good. Uh, So we have hope, we have peace, we have joy, and we have love. Um, But all of those things are dependent upon Jesus in our life. Uh, We do not have those things until Jesus was born here. He lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. So the last candle that we we light today is uh, the candle of Christ. It's called the Christ candle, and it's this big one here in the middle. We'll light that one. Now, the reason that we light uh, the Christ candle is we celebrate his birth, but we're also looking forward to Jesus coming back. And then we've talked about that a lot over the past several weeks. We've talked about it a lot this morning. But uh, the, the way that we need to think about this a little bit is waiting for Jesus uh, to come back is kind of like running a race. Have you guys ever run any sort of race before? Yes? Like, uh, have you just, you like race your brother? Your friends, okay. So have you ever thought about the fact that you need uh, certain things in order to have a race? So what are the things that we need in order to have a race? You need what? Ground. You do need ground in a lot of cases to, uh, to have a race. I'm gonna, you guys can uh, speak into this if you want. Steve, can you turn the microphone on, please? Okay, so we've got ground. What else do we need for a race? Yeah. A starting line. Oh, you are so smart. A starting line is what we need. So where is our starting line? Where is it? Right right there? Okay, that's going to be our starting line. Okay, so uh, that'll be our starting line. So, But we actually, do we need a line for our starting line? Does that help? If we have a line? Okay. So here we go. We've got a line for our starting line. It's right here. Okay. So what else do we need? We have a starting line. Yeah. We need a finish line. You guys are so smart. Okay, so, we, so where should our finish line be? At the end, okay? So we're going to have John and Zula are going to be our finish line. Okay? So you've got the rope. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please keep your knees, elbows, hands, and feet inside the cars at all times. If you have objects in the way, I would suggest moving them. Okay, so we have a starting line, we have a finish line. Okay, so what else do we need? And we have ground, right? And we have ground. We need people, okay? So you guys want to be our racers? I think we can do, I think we can adequately do two at a time. So you and you, yes! All right, so you guys, you guys come here, you can be first. But actually, you guys come up here, too, because we're going to do this part together, okay? Now, <clears throat> in order to actually race, then, okay, we have our starting line, we have our finish line, we know roughly where we're going. Now, what do we need to do? What's that? 
I count down. Right. So what do we normally say when we're going to race? Three, two, one, go. Okay. Anyone? Ready, set, go. Okay. And why is... The, the, start your engines. Why is the go part important? So you know when to start running. That's totally right. Now, but you can't just like stand here just like this, right? And be like, ready, set, go. Like, what do you need to do? So show me. You guys line up here in the front. We're not going to run yet. So when I say go, don't run. I know that seems like the wrong thing to do. But when I say go, don't run. So show me what it looks like to be ready. Ready to run. Okay, so we've got legs forward. We're sort of hunched over, right? Okay, why, why do we stand like this? So that you can push off. That's good. So we can push off and we can get started faster. Okay? Now, here's the thing. And this is maybe one of the most important parts of racing. You have to be ready to start in order to race, right? You've got to be ready to start. You've got to be ready to go. So we are going to, you guys are going to uh, race to the end here. Okay, watch out for Kathy right here. That would be bad if you trip over Kathy. Okay? And don't knock your brother into anyone along, along the lines. I know. Oh, th- we're really getting ready now. Look, we've got the crouching position. Okay? So here we go. Ready? You, you girls wait. You're next. Ready? Set? I have to say, I have to say go. Okay, ready, set, go. He totally has longer legs, by the way. I think, I mean, right? Okay, you girls ready? You girls, you, you ready to race? Okay, we're getting serious here, okay? In your parkas, even. It's like the Iditarod. We got going on a pair. Ready? Ready, set, Go. All right, guys, come back down. So here's the thing. We are living in anticipation of Jesus coming, which there's the way that we have to do that is we can't just stand around and be like, yeah, Jesus, love that guy. He's coming back someday. What God wants us to do is to live in anticipation, which means that we have to be ready to go. We have to be ready to run when someone tells us go. Okay, thanks everyone. You can go upstairs to Children's Church if you want. You can go right through those doors up there. Thomas is running too. He's going to make it through. Nice. I'm going to set it up here. This morning... We are going to talk about what it means to be ready. Uh, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that tell us about what it means to be ready um, and, and what it means for us to, to live our lives in anticipation. Okay, I don't know how you felt about the question that I asked earlier, how do you actually live your life in anticipation, but it's a really difficult question, I think. Uh, one that is hard for us to answer because it at least when I think about that question 
it, it makes me ask, okay, so what is the difference between the, is there a difference, I should say, between however it is that I'm living now and whatever I'm doing and the way that God wants me to live in anticipation of him? Like, am I showing anticipation? Uh, am I showing that I'm eager to be away from this place and with God? Um, my youngest son, Jed, um, has a hard time waiting for things in general, and he's always been pretty impatient. Zeke, Zeke has a little more patience uh, than Jed does in, in terms of waiting for things. Um, and, and Jed, since he was uh, little, you know, since the time he was like three, he would come up to me and he could ask me if he could do something. And I started a pattern that I still haven't corrected because I'm not that smart. Um, but I made a huge mistake because I would answer his question about when we could do something with a common parent answer. Maybe, not now, soon. Okay? You know what that is. It's, it's a rookie mistake. I should know better. I've had two children. But for some reason, I keep repeating this. Now, when you say these things to my son, in a little while, we'll get there soon. When you say these things to him, in his mind, he hears me say, yes, we can do this thing, and it's going to be really, really soon. That's what he's hearing me say. When I'm really saying, eh, like, we'll do it when I feel like it. Uh, so I give these answers, and, and what does Jed do? I tell him, in a little while, what does Jed do then? He comes back, and he says, okay, Dad, can we do this now? And what do I say? Not right now, in a little bit. Which means just a few minutes later, what is he going to do? He's going to repeat this again and again. Now, if I were smart, which again, we've established that I'm not, I would give him some sort of definitive answer. I would say, okay, we'll do this in 10 minutes. We'll do this uh, in 30 minutes. We'll do this whenever. Um, but, you know, the process, this process that I engaged in with my son was even worse when he was younger because I couldn't tell him we'll do it in 10 minutes because he didn't know how to tell time. And he didn't know how long a minute actually was. And so if you told him, sure, buddy, we'll do it in 10 minutes, you might as he'll come back again in one minute and say, Dad, is it time yet? And it's like, well, no, it's not, it's not time yet. Just, just, just hold on. Well, it's another nine minutes. But he doesn't know how long nine minutes actually are. Um, he really, at that point in his life, when he was like three or four, he only understood his day in terms of events. Okay, there were, there were things that happened for him every day, and so you had to learn to describe things to him around those events. There was wake-up time, there was school time, there was lunch time, there was rest time, there was dinner time, and then there was night-night time. Those were the events of my child's day. Meals and sleeping, apparently, are the, the hallmarks of, of, our, of our days when we were kids. And I distinctly remember having a conversation with Jed about the word today. So he would say, Dad, is this today? And I would say, yes. And he would say, what about the next day? And I would say, well, that's tomorrow. And what about the other day? Well, that was yesterday. Made sense, right? I mean, that's how this works. Except that the next day he would come to me and say, Dad, what day is this? Well, it's today. But you said this was tomorrow. Well, 
I know, son, but really there's a today every day. And then I found myself trying to explain this to him, my three or four year old son. And, uh, you know, you see that there is a today every day and every day you're in is today and the day in front of you is always tomorrow and the day behind you is always yesterday. But yesterday I told him that tomorrow was today, so how can it be both? Right? It's, it's hard. It's hard to explain this to my really smart little boy. But it occurs to me that our kids are basically... Um, us without any kind of self-control or filter, right? They say what they want in a lot of ways. They do what they want in a lot of ways. And I think we can learn from our children uh, just how impatient we can be. I don't know about you, but I do not particularly like to wait for things. Um, I don't like waiting in traffic. I don't like waiting for food when I'm at a restaurant. I don't like waiting at the DMV. Who does? Right? It's, it's an awful experience all the way around. And I think the, one of the main reasons that we as adults do not like to wait for things is that having to wait takes control out of our hands. We are busy people. The things we need to do are more important than what someone else needs to do. They just don't realize how important our things are. And having to wait on someone or something else takes away our sense of what's going on. So we are impatient people, and yet I'm not really sure that we live with impatience when we think about Jesus coming back. Remember before I said we should be antsy. We should be ready for this to happen. And maybe we have difficulty living this way because maybe like Jed was several years ago, it's hard to really live in anticipation for something when you don't know when it's going to happen. Right? I mean, people have been waiting for Jesus to return ever since Jesus left. And if you read some of the letters in the Bible, they talk about how some people won't even die before Jesus comes back. And yet, Jesus has not yet returned to us. And so, how can we live in anticipation when we don't know that it's going to happen? We don't know when it's going to happen, I should say. How, How do we live in anticipation when we don't understand today and tomorrow? When we can't read the time? When 10 minutes feels like an eternity? And so we come back waiting for another minute. How do we live this way? In the book of Luke, uh, Luke wants to tell the story of Jesus so that people will hear it and believe. And that's not a big surprise. It's one of the Gospels, one of the stories of Jesus. But Luke had some very specific and difficult challenges in front of him. He was dealing with the people that were like us. They were waiting forever for something to happen, but they didn't know when it was going to happen. They were waiting for the Messiah to return. And at the point that Jesus comes on the scene, as we talked about several weeks ago, the people of God had not had freedom, had not had their own sense of self, their own lives for generations of people. They were hurt. 
They were frustrated. They were waiting for the Messiah to come because the Messiah was going to come and make everything right for them. He would, he would remove them out from under the control of Rome. He would give them their own city. All the nations and the world would come and bow to them. And finally, they would be free to be themselves and be the people of God. And they were waiting and waiting and waiting as nation after nation took control of them. They wanted this to happen. They wanted it to happen. And then Jesus came. And so many of them missed it. It's almost like they were staring at this door, waiting for Jesus to come waiting for the Messiah to be here. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're looking and they're staring. And they know that any second now this door is going to open. But Jesus came in that door. And they didn't see it. They missed it. Because Jesus was not the Messiah that they thought they were going to get. Don't misunderstand me. He was the Messiah that they needed. But he was not the Messiah they expected to have. And so these are weary and impatient people. They've been through a lot, and Luke wants them to be able to sit down and read this story of Jesus and have confidence that everything he's saying is true. Jesus is the Messiah. You can believe it in him. So the thing that Luke had to do was to show that the people needed this Jesus in spite of what he did or did not do. And he needed them to believe that Jesus was still the promised one of God. And the mission that he carried was the one that God wanted him to accomplish. And so Luke starts out his gospel uh, telling about the birth of Jesus, but he jumps right into the passages that we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 2. This is going to be sort of our home chapter this morning. And here's what uh, Luke wants his readers to understand. Here's what we need to think about this morning. Luke wanted his readers to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of what God had planned. And so when he starts out this whole story of Jesus, when he gets past the birth, he emphasizes this idea that God is fulfilling everything he promised in Jesus. So we have this story starting in verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so there are two things that are happening here. Okay, um, there are two different things that are happening in this one event, and both of them are significant to the Jewish people. And it's something that a good Jew would do in order to honor God. The first uh, thing is the purification of the mother at the temple. Um, the basic explanation here is that blood, whether it came from childbirth or whether it came from a woman's cycle, it made the woman unclean under the law. And so when... Um, 
when she went through childbirth, she had to go to the temple in order to be cleansed so that she could worship God again. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 12. Not something we do very often is go to Leviticus. Um, keep your fingers in Luke chapter 2, though, if, uh, if you want to turn over there. Leviticus chapter 12, it kind of explains this, the whole thing that's going on for us. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses... Say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially unclean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Now, I know probably what you're thinking right now. Um, did Bryce just talk about what I think he talked about? That's probably your first question. Uh, the second thing you may be thinking is, that is so unfair. <laughs> Kelly, that is so unfair. <laughs> Women shouldn't be treated that way. Okay, so whatever you think about it, <clears throat> I have to take my sweater off because I'm starting to schwitz up here. <clears throat> oh, that's better. So whatever you think about it, this was the procedure that God put out in order to purify his people. And I, and I want to make one sort of side note clear. God had purification rights for a lot of different things. Okay? So is he singling women out here? Well, yeah, he kind of is. Uh, but there were purification rights for a lot of different things. But this is what would happen um, 40 days after the birth of a son, um, or 80 days after the birth of a daughter. And what's important to note is that this is something that Mary was expected to do. And so when Mary and Joseph go to the temple and she goes through the purification rites and they take Jesus, this is what she should do. And why is she doing it? Because it's the law and God told her to, but it's also the way that she stays in relationship with God. She is doing what she is supposed to. And the pigeons were the offering that the poor would bring to be purified. So Jesus comes from a poor family. They can't afford to bring sheep. They, they can't sacrifice lambs. So she gives uh, pigeons as a sacrifice. But there is more going on than just the purification of Mary. Um, because Luke tells us that they have also come to present Jesus to God. Okay, to present Jesus to God, which is sort of an interesting concept to think about, isn't it? Right? Jesus is the son of God given to us by God. And they take Jesus to the temple to say, hey, God, it's Jesus. Right? Seems kind of like a weird thing to have happen. 
but this was the practice that families would go through, particularly with their firstborn sons, and it was called the redemption of the firstborn. This comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 13. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem, redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So this was also a big deal that they were commanded to do. They were to give their firstborn symbolically to the Lord. The firstborn of both people and animals were to be given to the Lord. The animals were sacrificed, but the human beings were to serve God throughout their lives. And the Levites, if you were from the Levite tribe, they actually uh, served in place of the firstborn children. So whatever tribe you were from, you would bring your firstborn to uh, the temple to offer them to God, but the Levite tribe served on their behalf. They still belonged to God, but they didn't have to stay there at the temple. Um, and a payment of five shekels was to be paid to the temple treasury to redeem the firstborn child. So it's easy to overlook these things in terms of what comes next, because when we've read this chapter before, my guess is that we have focused more on the characters we meet after this, than what we have just talked about. I mean, all we really care about in the setting of the story is that Jesus and Joseph and Mary are there. But we need to understand something. They are there because they are fulfilling what, they, what God has asked them to do for themselves and for Jesus. They are doing what they should. Now, let's look back at Luke chapter 2. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And so Luke wants us to see that the family of Jesus is a devout family that does what God wants them to do. And this is important to him because remember, he's talking to a people who some of them saw Jesus come through the door, but some of them didn't. And there are all kinds of things about Jesus that are being said at this point. And what does he want them to understand? Jesus comes from not a rich family or an influential family, but a family that does what? Yeah. Honors God. He comes from a place where his family honors God. But beyond just following the rules, there is a sense of something more that is going on here that Mary and Joseph are going to dedicate Jesus to God in a way that is different than the norm. And perhaps, um, maybe it's sort of like a reference to Samuel, if you remember the story of Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, and his mother uh, prayed for him to be born and promised God that if, if she had a son, she would give him to God, just as you were supposed to do with the firstborn. And so when Samuel was born, and as soon as he was able to sort of handle himself, she took him to the temple and left him there and gave him to God. And he served God for the rest of his life. So 
within the context of Mary and Joseph fulfilling the law, there is something else fairly important that happens. Uh, let's look, uh, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Okay. Who is this guy? Well, we know that he loved God, that he was righteous and devout. But we know something else about him. What is the main thing about his life? He is waiting for what? He's waiting for the Messiah. In particular, he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, when he looks at himself and he looks at his people, he sees them as being broken. And the greatest desire of his heart is that his people would be restored once again. And so that is what he is waiting for. And because his heart is waiting, is broken in such a way, he had received a special gift. It doesn't seem like a special gift, honestly, but he had received a special gift. And that was the gift of waiting. You are going to wait like no one else waits. And here's why. You will not die before you see the Lord's Messiah. So verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So God, think about this, as Mary and Joseph and Jesus are coming into the temple and doing their thing and they're there because they're supposed to be, the Spirit of God moves Simeon to go to the temple courts at the same time. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This is an amazing moment. It's also terribly awkward. Because Simeon sees Jesus, and what does he recognize? Hallelujah, this is the one. And he goes and grabs Jesus. Right? Out of his stroller. Out of the baby Bjorn, Jesus comes. And he lifts Jesus over his head and he makes this proclamation. Listen to it again. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. You know what strikes me so much about the statement that he makes? Is this. What does he essentially say to start with? God, I can die now. This is what I've been waiting my whole life for. And now that I've seen it, take me home. Because I know that restoration is coming to your people. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. 
She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then been a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. As remarkable as Simeon was, Anna blows me away. Within that culture in particular, your life was valued and rated by your family. Your husband, how many children you have. Are you helping the line go on? And Anna has not had an easy life. She was not married to her husband very long before she became a widow. And she had been a widow for how long? 84 years. 84 years. But here's what is most remarkable to me. How has she lived her life? She has lived her life in the temple, worshiping day and night, fasting and praying. And what is she waiting for? She's waiting for the Messiah to come. How do we know she's waiting for the Messiah to come? Because what gift is she given? When she sees Jesus, what does she do? She recognizes him. Because she has been looking, she has been ready, and she's been waiting. And so when she sees Jesus, she recognizes who he is, and she proclaims his birth to everyone there. So what can we learn from this story? How does this story inform what it means for us to live in anticipation? What does it tell us? I think it tells us a couple of things. And it's why we focused on what Luke was saying. I think Luke emphasized some of these things for this reason, and he wanted people to know this. Look, I know the Jesus that came was not the Jesus that you were looking for, but if you look closely enough, you'll see who he is. If you look closely enough, you'll see who he is. His, his parents fulfilled every promise to God that they could, and Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. But then we look at Anna and Simeon and it makes me even more convinced that I do not live in anticipation as I should. That something has to change in me in order to live in such a way that I'm among the first to see it. Do you know what I mean? Not that I have to be written to later to say, dude, you were looking at the wrong door. I want to be like Anna and Simeon and looking at the right door and to see the Messiah when he comes. So it occurs to me that it's one thing for me to say I'm waiting on God and it is another thing to actually do it. 
Because you know, there were a lot of people in the temple that day. The temple was busy every day. So who knows how many people passed Jesus and said, oh, what a cute baby. Oh, what an ugly baby. Who knows how many people passed him that day and did not see what God was doing there. But there were two that did. Because they were ready, they were looking for him, and they were waiting. We see this happen again and again through the life of Jesus. There are those that hear his words and see what he does, and they recognize him for who he is. And there are others, as well-intentioned as they might be, that reject Jesus and call him their enemy. So how do I begin to live in anticipation, a more active anticipation of Jesus? I want to offer just a couple of ideas. The first one is this. I can't live my life in expectation for what I want my life to be. I need to live my life with the expectation that Jesus is coming back and that's what my life will be. Let's go back to Anna for a second. When she got married, what did she think her life would be like? Did it end up that way? Was she angry with God? I would imagine so. We don't know. But what we do know is that she spent the rest of her life with God. When things went haywire and off the tracks and she lost what her life was going to be, she spent the rest of her life with God. We can get so fixated on what we want our life to be like here. On what we hope for, what we want to have, who we hope to be. So maybe we learn from Anna that while we still live our life here, we need to give up on that dream because it's not the real dream. It's not really what we're looking for. What we are looking for is for the Messiah to come and to take us home again. But if I'm living so much for here and for what I want to accomplish here, then I'm going to miss something. I'm going to miss something. So that's, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, I need to have such a relationship with God where wanting to be with him and wanting to be away from this place and wanting to be home becomes the cry of my heart. You know, it occurs to me when I look at both Anna and Simeon, while they were actively waiting, yes, all of that was fruit from their relationship with God, from the time that they spent with him, from their desire to be God's children. And if I don't have that kind of personal relationship with God, where I am sharing with him the depths of my heart, where he is bringing me through all the stuff that I'm going through, if he is not central to who I am, then I will not live in anticipation. 
Is he the main thing? Is he at the center of who I want to be and what I want for my life? As was mentioned earlier, this is the last day of 2017. We make all sorts of resolutions, as was mentioned. There are a lot of things I would like to happen this year. But here is the number one thing that I wish for myself, for my wife, for my children, and for you. I pray that God will help us to learn to live in anticipation. That we will not see ourselves as citizens of this world, but as citizens of his kingdom. That we will be antsy and anxious. And that we won't miss anything. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a prayer that um, I'm not really sure how to pray, and I'm scared of what it's asking for. But God, I know that I want to live my life in more anticipation of you. God, I look forward to you. I love you. I give all that I have to you, and yet I still feel like I'm holding back from you in some ways. God, would you remove those things from our lives, those areas that are keeping us attached to this place, Father, that we may live in anticipation of you. May our hearts be broken for the world around us as Simeon's heart was broken. May our eyes be turned to look for you as both Simeon and Anna's were. And God, because we are so connected to you, may we see what you are showing us instead of looking for what we want to see. God, we ask that your son, Jesus, come back soon. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, or you want to know this God,